Welcome to the Good Reading Podcast, proudly sponsored by Book People Gift Cards. A Book People gift card is the perfect gift for readers of all ages. Simply order your gift card online at bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Redeem in any one of over 500 bookshops across Australia. Visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au. Hello and welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Catherine Kovacic is a former veterinarian who took up dog training. Catherine is also the author of The Portrait of Molly Dean, which was shortlisted for a Ned Kelly Award for Best First Fiction, along with two other novels, Painting in the Shadows and The Shifting Landscape. And today I'm joined by Catherine Kovacic to talk about her latest book, Australia's Dogs. Catherine, welcome to the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you very much. Lovely to be talking with you, Greg. Mutt, mongrel, pooch, flea bag among many other things, but uh, also man's best friend. Now, dogs aren't for everybody, but when they are, they form a very strong bond. And with a history that dates back tens of thousands of years, what is it about dogs or, or what is it about people, which has meant they've sought each other's company? Oh, wow. That's the really interesting question. Why did dogs become domesticated or did dogs domesticate us? That's one of the questions that we we don't really get into it in Australia's Dogs, the book, but it's certainly something that entertains all us crazy dog people. The idea of cooperation, we got something out of the relationship and dogs did, rather than dogs just, you know, coming around and cleaning up scraps around the campfire. We got something out of the deal too, and whether that's cooperation in hunting or whether that's a little bit of company and a little bit of warmth or whether it's protection, there was something in it for us as well as the dogs that made us form that bond uh, probably about 40,000 years ago. So a very convenient exchange. Absolutely. Your book, Australia's Dogs, explores this bond between canine and human. But first, let's get into the incredible collection of photographs that document that bond in visual form. Most of the photographs in this book come from the National Library of Australia's collection. What is that collection's history, its size, and what were the criteria for inclusion in this book? Wow. Okay. So the National Library holds over 600,000 items in their overall collection. And these pictures come from various parts of those, those different collections. And um, the criteria, well, it, it had to show, it had to be Australian, obviously, because we do hold international material as well. It had to show a dog. And uh, whether that dog is on its own or with a person or, you know, doing something or just sitting there, it had to kind of tell us something about that that relationship that we've had with dogs uh, in Australia. Um, and some, I mean, it didn't really have to be funny or quirky. It just had to had to tell us that little bit of something. And the criteria for selection, well, really, we probably could, could have gone on and done a second volume. There had to be a little bit of a story that we could explore too, I think. I noticed that in some of the photographs, um, the humans aren't smiling, but the dogs appear to be. Do dogs actually smile or are we simply anthropomorphizing? Well, that's another very interesting question. Certainly um, MRI scans would show that, that dogs tend to experience emotions similar to those that humans experience. The smile mechanism is very different and, um, and what we might think of as a smile on the dog is certainly a relaxed and happy face, but perhaps not, not quite what we'd, we'd think of as a smile. I think the other interesting thing there is, though, that, you know, in days gone past, people were told not to smile in photographs because um, because it made them look, well, it actually made them look common. That was the original understanding. It wasn't anything to do with keeping still in a photograph. And that comes from, from actually from paintings, you know, that anyone who was showing teeth or had their mouth wide open must be, you know, drunk or 
that child was allowed to look like that, but not adults. You had to look serious and I suppose intellectual. And so there's some some fabulous photographs when you can see the people are doing their best to look serious and straight faced. And there's this dog that's got its mouth wide open, its tongue hanging out, and it's kind of sitting a little bit sprawled to, to one side. And you you do get that feeling that the dog's thinking, what is all this fuss about? And what are we doing here? Let's get on and chase a ball or do something like that. And there are even a couple where you can see that the people kind of had a little twinkle or a little quirk at the side of their mouth. They know that dog's going to upstage them completely, but they're all in it there. And they're probably paying good money for this photograph at these times too, but they're having their dog included with them. Let's go back in time. Let's get back to the dingo. You refer to the dingo as an ancient migrant, but what's the current understanding about the arrival of the dingo in Australia? From the fossil record, we can see that dingoes have been here for at least three and a half thousand years. We know that they probably weren't here earlier than 12,000 years because dingoes never made it to Tasmania and that was the point where the island was separated from the mainland. So we had that window for dingo arrival. Um, Fossils obviously require specific conditions to form. So just because we haven't found the fossils doesn't mean that they weren't here uh, many, many thousands of years before that. The theories have been that dingoes migrated on foot when we were connected to um, the countries further to our north. But there is also the theory that dingoes were brought here in boats with ancient seafaring tribes and um, they either settled here or they were traded with our First Nations people. But one way or the other, the dingo got here. The question is whether they were already not necessarily tame but accustomed to humans before they got here. They certainly became very accustomed to living with First Nations people once they did arrive. And the dingo is an important part of First Nations culture, uh, though much maligned by white Australia, I might add. What's the significance of the dingo in Indigenous culture and how is the dingo represented in their art? Dingoes are represented, well, in in many different forms. There's uh, dingoes as part of the creation myth. There's dingoes shown hunting with people. And this was a question too, were dingoes hunters? Because, you know, they could potentially upstage the hunt if they, they frighten the prey. But we, we do know that dingoes hunted with Indigenous people. The role of the dingo in Indigenous society obviously varies depending on which peoples you're with, which part of the country and what the dingoes are doing. But certainly they were very much a part of camp life for many communities, um, very much a part of the food finding process, whether that was hunting with the men or actually foraging for smaller food and things with the women. And certainly we know that puppies were a very important part and older dogs also, as the the saying, the two-dog night, that we know that older dogs gave companionship and warmth and comfort to older people within the tribe. So very important roles. It did vary, however, across the country. The dingoes had a pretty rough ride over the last 200 years, but it seems we might be coming to realise the importance of the dingo in our ecosystems How has our understanding of the dingo changed? I suppose the key thing would be the question as to whether we consider the dingo a species all of its own, in which case it's very important and protected, or as perhaps suits people who would prefer not to see dingoes around because of their impact on farming practices, are dingoes just a type of domestic dog, in which case they're feral, they're vermin, it's very easy to then justify getting rid of them. But dingoes, either way, whichever way we want to classify them scientifically, are an important part of the ecosystem. As you said, they are our only apex predator and they do wonderful things in certainly keeping away feral animals such as goats, cats, things like that that destroy our native wildlife. They also control kangaroo populations. So we've we've found, and this has been since early settlement, if you eradicate the dingoes, you get an influx of kangaroos 
they're going to eat your crops, they're going to compete with your livestock, you still have a problem. It just shifts it down the line and creates a different problem for you to deal with. So there are farmers who are looking at ways to maintain dingo populations in and around their farming. It is much harder if you farm a smaller animal such as sheep because they are much more vulnerable than big things like cattle. But to maintain a dingo population, which is self-regulatory, you have you generally you'll have a, a, a leading couple in that pack that keep control of all those really adolescents. And if that pack is allowed to maintain itself, you might lose some livestock, but you're not going to lose as much as if you have those unruly adolescents going off and doing the sort of things that all unruly adolescents tend to do, which is just go a bit nutso. So there is a, a push towards looking at how we can live side by side with dingoes in our environment. And certainly there are also um, wildlife sanctuaries that are specifically looking at maintaining pure dingo bloodlines, getting rid of that interbred dog dingo thing that also causes problems for farmers and maintaining those populations, hopefully, with a view to reintroducing them into the wild in areas where they are not going to cause too much trouble. Now, Australians have all kinds of relationships with dogs. Uh, some are pets, but I love the way you describe working dogs as dogs with jobs. And of course, uh, we know that they work on cattle and sheep stations, but there's more than one breed that have contributed to Australia's GDP over the years, if you like. I often wondered uh, if dogs should be on the payroll, but that's another matter. Some Australian breeds and the relationships they formed with people have become the stuff of legend. Very much so. Well, I think we talk about Border Collies in the book. They're not an Australian breed, but they are a very important part of farming life because they are a very good working dog. You were saying about dogs, you know, and the GDP, we have that phrase, Australia got rich on the sheep's back, but I think Australia got rich because we had a dog on the sheep's back that was helping us maintain those herds and flocks and move them across those vast open distances. It's, it wouldn't have been possible to do it in the early years of Australian farming. And certainly today, a good dog is worth two or three human workers in the amount of work they can do. And that is why people pay incredible, you know, $20,000 for a good working Kelpie because they know that it makes economic sense. And it's probably an easier working relationship to have, let's face it, than, than trying, to, trying to get a couple of people to, to do what you need them to do. So we have some wonderful Australian breeds. Um, the most notable, obviously, working breeds are the Kelpie and the Healer. So whether you call it a Queensland Healer, a Blue Healer, a Red Healer, uh, we also have the Stumpy-tailed Cattle Dog, which looks like a Blue Healer, only it doesn't have a tail, which is the natural way it should be. And then we have some lesser-known working breeds, like the Australian Cooley, which is also a good stock working dog the Smithfield, a Tasmanian farming breed. So we've really got diverse dogs for diverse situations. And what were the conditions that inspired breeders to create these dogs that we now know as Australian icons? What was it about the Australian environment and the work that they did that made this breeding cycle necessary? I think, first of all, most of the originating stock obviously came out from England. So we have a much warmer climate. We have much bigger distances for dogs to manage and we had a lot of open country you know in if you think of those English farms with their nice little hedges or stone fences we didn't have that you know we, we got sort of some wire fencing and some stone fencing in the early days but we needed dogs that could you know round up animals that had essentially been left to roam for you know six eight months on their own and then we also needed dogs that had um not so much coat as the English dogs because we have a, a you know rougher bush, rougher environment. They're going to get all sorts of burrs and tangles in their coats. And um, and tough, well, tough little feet, you get those in, in sort of highland dogs as well. But we needed dogs for environment, 
that's the, the, the scrub, and for the temperature and for distance. So very, very hardy dogs. You mentioned the Kelpie back then. I've learned so much from your book. I didn't realise that that breed that we know as a Kelpie is actually descended from a dog named Kelpie. That's right. That's right. So Kelpie was a, a coveted dog, the young man um, who, who was looking, wanted a particular bloodline, and they were never released from this farm. And he finally managed to trade a horse for this little bitch from that particular line, and he named her Kelpie. And then there was a subsequent Kelpie from that bitch several litters later. And um, these Kelpies were so coveted by, by other farmers, by other people who worked stock, that they talked about Kelpies dogs, and that just became abbreviated to a Kelpie. And even, you know, sort of almost 100 years after that line was originated, they were still advertising that it came from the original King's Kelpie line. And so you knew if you had a Kelpie, you had a Kelpie dog, you had the very best that, that you could have to work your stock. I want to talk about this thing you call an Australian dynasty. Now, we have a, a number of homegrown dog breeds. And until I read your book, I, I'd never heard of the Australian Husky. I mean, I've seen photos of Huskies, didn't assume that they really had an Australian connection. What's the story behind the Australian Husky? And why were they so important to our exploration of Antarctica? So while they're not a specific breed, the Australian Huskies were the dynasty of dogs that were, were bred in Antarctica from the bloodlines that our Australian explorers took down there to our, our bases originally. So while we had some original dogs down there in the early part of the 20th century, it was really from the, the 30s, 40s and 50s, 50s particularly, that we were really starting to settle our presence in Antarctica and that we really needed those dogs to help the explorers cross the country and so we had some French lines and other European lines. And it was because obviously Antarctica is a closed system. The dogs were down there. They stayed down there. And then with the import of some other blood from New Zealand, from America, as we switched and swapped dogs down there, we developed our own line. And the husky that we sort of see in suburbia today is a very different dog to these very big, very woolly dogs that you'll see in the pictures in Antarctica and really, I think that the, the early exploration and study work that was done down there could not have been done without those dogs being there. And it's interesting when you sort of read about some of the, I'd call it crazy training that seemed to go on, because I think a lot of the people that went down there that were working with the dogs didn't have much dog training experience. And the dogs obviously are, are very big and very strong. So there's some really interesting things about, you know, it's easier to get the sled to turn left or right if the dogs are already turning left or right when you give the command. And I thought that was beautiful. But when you think about it, the dogs probably actually could feel the land better than the humans could and knew that mm, maybe things were getting a bit dodgy and we need to turn left at this point before we get into trouble. I want to get back to the photographs just for a moment. As you said, they're all drawn from the NLA collection or most of them are drawn from the NLA collection. But what are the sources? How did some of those photos end up in the collection? Well, there are certainly some that are from professional photographers, so media photographers who perhaps worked for the Herald and Weekly Times or uh, fashion photographers, um, you know, some of like Rennie Ellis, those sorts of people. But a lot of them are from amateur photographers, um, whether they were notable people or just regular people. Um, some of them are what we'd call, you know, a cabinet photograph or a studio photograph. They're of certain people or not certain people at all, just everyday Australians with their dogs. Some of them are definitely posed and some of them are just completely candid snaps and I think that's the interesting thing that we go from the very early photography which was taking over from portraiture so you'd pay a lot of money to go into a studio and sit for your portrait 
And some people chose to take their dog along, which shows how important their dogs were to them. And hats off to those photographers who had to, you know, have that longer exposure time and managed to often get children and dogs to sit still for the length of time they needed to get their, their lovely clear shot. And then, of course, in the early 20th century, we had the explosion of amateur photography with the box brownie coming in particularly. And, um, and dogs were something that people chose to photograph. So I don't think the photographs, many of them have necessarily been included in the National Library collection because the dog was there. They've been included because they're a nice snapshot of Australia, their social history. And so that's a lovely thing to see how, how dogs have, have followed us through history in that way. And uh, that brings me to a nice little quote you've got there. There is no photograph that could be considered to show just a dog. Well, I think there's always a story behind the dog. So, you know, there's one picture that, that has a little Australian terrier sitting on a chair. But if you look very carefully, you can see that obviously he was a wriggly little terrier and there's a lady crouched behind him. This is probably about a 1908 photograph. And so she's got big hair. So you can you can just see the top of her hair above this little dog. Um, and, you know, the, the dog that, that is just perhaps sitting under the couch, but there'll be someone, you know, on the couch. And so who's that person and why is that dog there? There's always a story behind the little doggos in the picture. You have a parallel career as a crime novelist, The Portrait of Molly Dean, based on the real-life murder of Molly Dean, an artist's muse, also Painting in the Shadows and The Shifting Landscape, and your latest book, Seven Sisters, which feature Alex Clayton, a female sleuth, but also Hogarth, the Irish wolfhound. Why did you choose this breed as a dog to include in your crime novels? Right. So I'll just say Seven Sisters is a standalone, but the first three are definitely Alex Clayton and Hogarth. Hogarth, well, obviously his name is, it's an artistic name. The artist Hogarth actually had pugs. So he wasn't an Irish wolfhound man. He was a pug man. So this is William, William Hogarth we're talking about. William Hogarth, correct. William Hogarth actually did a series of engravings uh, that were called The Four Stages of Cruelty, which begin with a, a young man tormenting animals and end up with him becoming a murderer and being hanged for it. So there's a little parallel to crime and a little parallel to the way we treat animals. But Hogarth was specifically chosen for Alex because um, Irish wolfhounds are a very tall and imposing breed. Uh, they look like they're going to be scary but they're actually very friendly. And so Alex has a bit of that aspect to her personality. She seems like a bit of a gruff, scary person, but when you get to know her, she's a bit of a softy. So that was why I chose that breed for Alex specifically, so that it's a bit of a reflection of her personality there. And you've also studied art history, and uh, it makes me think, is there a natural combination between dogs, art, and your female sleuth, Alex Clayton? Well, yes and no, because before I studied art history, I was actually a veterinarian. So we segued, well, oddly, I think for me, veterinary medicine into art history was a was a very big change, but I was always interested in the dogs in the painting, um, the little ones in the corner, but particularly the ones interacting with people um, as they do in photographs. Because um, coming to art history, I found that there was always, always a, a propensity to look at the dog as some sort of metaphorical thing that had some sort of deep significance in the painting and sometimes that's true but for a dog person and for a veterinarian and for someone who looks at animal behavior and human animal interaction there were so many times when I would think well the dog's really there because that person wanted it there not because it represents the link between purity and chastity and marriage or something like that there'd be you know always some big art historical uh, explanation as there often is in art history, that tendency to over-explain. 
And sometimes a dog is just a dog. And sometimes a dog is important to the sitter in a painting, just as it is in a photograph. So I think that's that's kind of always where my head is, where I'm looking at pictures. What's what's going on between the dog and the person? Your biography says that you spend part of your time teaching other people's dogs to ride skateboards. How do you convince a dog of any breed to get on a skateboard? Uh, very slowly. Now, not every dog likes to skateboard, and if they don't like to skateboard, I find another trick that they like to do. But basically what I start off doing is I jam the wheels so that the board's not going anywhere and I get them to put two paws up so that they can feel the board rocking from side to side and we reward that and we reward that and then we get three paws up and then we start to move the board a little bit and we see how we go. And some dogs like to ride around, others don't. Dogs that have a low centre of gravity, staffies, for example, are often very good at it because their balance is right down there. Big, tall dogs like wolfhounds, for example. First of all, you need a longer board, just going to say that. But the centre of gravity is a lot higher, so it's a bit more of a challenge. And um, as I said, some dogs would prefer to do some other trick entirely. So my big criteria is it's got to be fun for the dogs and fun for the people, and we take it from there. Catherine Kovacic, thank you so much for joining me on the Good Reading Podcast. Thank you. It's been an absolute pleasure. I've been talking to Catherine Kovacic about her new book, Australia's Dogs. It's published by the National Library of Australia, and you can find it at goodreadingmagazine.com.au. My name's Greg Dobbs, and thanks for listening. This Good Reading podcast was brought to you by Book People Gift Cards. Share the joy of reading with a Book People Gift Card. To find out more, visit bookpeoplegiftcards.org.au.